0: since brevity is the soul of wit.
1: More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo? Wherefore art thou, Romeo?
0: To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise-breaker. The owner of no one good quality, worthy your lordship's entertained. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth too much, things. The course of true love never did run smooth. You're Lindsay.
1: I'm. Oh, you're you're Aiden. I'm Lindsay. Yes. yep, <laughs> yep Those are both
0: true facts. Uh, and you are listening to the BixPod. Uh, and this week we are talking about
1: Henry the Sixth,
0: Part One. Part One of three. Yes.
1: This is this is a slog.
0: This one, this one, this, this one, is take I, some time. I'm
1: not looking forward to part two and three. Not,
0: after we're, not part we're not
1: selling this very well, are we? Yeah,
0: it's going to be a great episode, Lindsay. It's going to be awesome. awesome. It's going to be just as good as the play.
1: Oh, crap. Yeah, that
0: was not a good endorsement. <laughs>
1: uh, Aiden, it, Aiden, what's what's Henry VI all about?
0: Um, I'm ready to tell you, Lindsay. Are you ready to time me telling you? I'm, I'm ready to time you telling me. Okay, you tell me when, and I will start.
1: You've got 30 seconds on the clock to give us a plot play by play.
0: No. It's a synopsis. I can't give you the play-by-play. Shut up. Just do it. Go. So, uh, this is, you might think Henry VI's, uh, Wars of the Roses, but this is actually the prequel to the Wars of the Roses, this is the war in France! That's what this whole play is about! It's all about, uh, everybody fighting after Henry V died. There, you've got Talbot, which is the main guy on the English side, and you've got Joan of Arc, the legend, on the French side. And you get a little bit of both sides, and they basically, Talbot and Joan of Arc, they fight it out, back and forth, and 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 then the win, and oh my god, that's it! Oh, and Talbot dies at the end.
1: Well, all right. Yeah, you it? made it. You made it. That's our that's our time. Sweet. Um
0: Whew, that was close. But that's it. it. I, I, I feel like I adequately described the play, actually, Lindsay. How do you think I did?
1: Um, yeah, basically. I mean, from <laughs> from what I remember of it. I just finished reading it last night and, and I, it's I already it's,
0: exited your brain. Yeah, yeah. This
1: was this was a really um not engaging play for many reasons, which we will get into. Yeah. Um when I was writing up the notes for this, I started off with good things about the play and problems with the play. And we filled like two pages with problems, problems. <laughs> and only a couple paragraphs for the good, yeah. um, which is problematic for the play. I Does think- it bode well, well let's play? just
0: say that this is one of the least performed plays of all of Shakespeare's works. Right. Um by and large, I would say that even the other Henry the 6 parts uh get are a little bit more attention.
1: Well, the thing with that is that it's um it pales in comparison to the other tetralogy that yeah. covers this period. So, so let's let's back that up a bit. Yeah. There are two tetralogies which Makes eight plays that cover the Wars of the Roses, basically, and the first one starts wow. with Richard II, yeah. um, and the last one ends with Richard III. So yeah. they are written out of order. It's yeah. really confusing. So yeah. the the these later plays, the the Henry and Richard III, were written earlier than the. Plays chronologically that set early, earlier, yes. like Henry V and Henry. So basically, IV.
0: there was an original series of these ones, then they did the prequels, which yes. were much better.
1: Kind of like Star Wars.
0: Okay, so but we, these are this not as is good. Over.
1: No, but but no. When you think about it, how we, no, 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 no. Like like just in terms of how they were they were yes, made. Yes, but these are not of the same caliber no
0: it's the opposite it's the inverted quality scale of the prequels to the original Star Wars films Um, and we we should specify uh, we're doing this in the order of Henry the Sixth, Part One. Then we'll do Part Two, and then Part Three. Um, which is
1: not how they were written.
0: Probably not. Uh, the evidence that there is about the production history and and writing is that probably Part Two and Three came first, and then he came back to do Part One. Yeah. Um, that might not have been the order in which they were written, though, because there are some tiebacks and stuff. Anyways, it's kind of it's kind of convoluted, but we're doing them in this order. Yeah. Just because it made sense. Well, for and us. and
1: and yeah, it it doesn't make a lot of sense to go with Henry the Second when you haven't
0: part. Second. Part two, yeah. <laughs> and that's the other thing that's confusing is that
1: there are multiple parts here. So, so we are just when we approach these, we're approaching them in the order that they would be chronologically speaking. I guess, but even then, it's not like within the play, Henry the deals with some wonky timeline Oh, the, yeah, like, it's very it makes strange. no
0: sense. But, there's a lot of issues with the play.
1: <laughs> yeah, for for being a history play, it certainly it 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 it's plays fast, fast and loose, and loose. with yes. the history absolutely um, which is not a bad thing i know think i
0: think that- you would need to to give some structure and some semblance of uh main characters to the plot like yeah so this it is set immediately after the death of henry v in fact this, the play opens with the funeral procession of henry v um but at that point henry vi was like um a year old six even months, six I months or something like that old. um and then like two acts later he makes his first appearance and he sounds like he's supposed to be a teenager um, possibly, so obviously that's not accurate. Right. Um, and all the events that happen in France are kind of uh, compressed, and they all happen much earlier, and then obviously much later. Like the well, yeah, like the the, and-
1: the the main part of the opening scene that sets the stage for the rest of the play is that the king has died. There's this young son on the throne who needs um, guidance and and a protectorate put in place so that so his uncles end up stepping in and fighting over who's going to actually lead and then um the the territories that Henry V conquered in France are lost immediately this all happens in the first scene yeah. and and that isn't true to the way that things happened. No. Like that took a
0: few years. Many years, years yeah. Henry Henry VI was I think in his twenties when they lost most right. of their possessions in France. Right. So which
1: were hard won and definitely not um something that the English were proud of. But but as we talked about in our history episode, Henry the Sixth did get to wear the crown of France. So losing those territories in France happening right now. Uh, immediately after he takes the throne is is a bit of a fan fictiony yeah, right of history yeah, exactly. which works to heighten the drama such as it is in this play which as aiden mentioned is yeah. really just a volley back and forth between um these cities rouen and um champagne champagne and other areas that are just was in, it champagne?
0: No, Jeez, maybe it's like, not even. Yeah, I don't it, it, like but like Orléans the Orleans or maybe yeah, I don't I don't remember.
1: In French hands and then they're in English hands and then they're in French hands and then they're in English hands. Sometimes and that's in really, one scene yeah, this happens. Yeah. So, so uh, it's it's yeah. it's that's the thrust of the play. Henry VI has very few lines. He's not really present in the play for a play yeah. that's written about him. It's really about the early um trials and tribulations of his Rain. Rain
0: but not about him as a character.
1: Right, there are far more like central characters, John Talbot who is the the terror of the French. Yeah. Um Joan of Joan Arc of yeah. plays a central role. Charles the Dauphin of yeah. France uh has a much larger role than Henry VI does. Um even some of the other women like um the Countess of Auvergne yeah. and yeah, Margaret of Anjou a more active role. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. have much yeah. bigger roles and and are set up to be bigger roles in the future plays, which were written before this probably, but, but anyway, and, and then there's the issue that we'll get into of probably this play was not written solely by Shakespeare. So, um, so that lends some problematic aspects to the writing as well. If you've been reading along with us, um, we would love to hear what you think about the play. But again, these are just our opinions about as, as writers looking at this play, there are things that strike us as
0: not so good yeah some are born great some achieve greatness sister and some have greatness thrust upon them so Linz, what was the one thing that i see in our notes that you wrote <laughs> that was a good thing about the play
1: well i do think that john talbot is is a compelling character in this play he's not the most well-rounded of shakespeare's, shakespeare's heroes, protagonists no. or anything um but he is sort of a compelling figure he's he's when we were first introduced to him in the play he's captured he's a french prisoner of war mm. um and they're trading for him to come back and he gets back and and he is this figure that is very much um revered by the english and feared by the french so when we have him encountering the countess of auvergne later she makes fun of him for being short of stature and yeah. kind of a ghost of a man or a shadow of a man i think mm. is how she puts it um which probably suggests that the early performer, the early performances were were his performance was played by somebody who was short or yeah. maybe not as imposing a figure. Um so that makes it compelling because you think there's even if that isn't true, even if the actual first Earl of Shrewsbury or whatever his title was wasn't this shriveled short you know, yeah. non-imposing person, um, it does lend something interesting to the character. Like maybe yeah. he's got something to prove.
0: Exactly. Well, not just that he has something to prove, but that he he's more than he looks. Yeah. Whereas every other character, with probably the exception of Joan of Arc, plays into their role very, very... Clearly, there's no, there's no wiggle room. There's no room for uh, nuance in any of these. And I
1: think that's that's mostly because there are so many characters. If you look at the (laughs) cast of characters, I didn't count them, but in my ebook reader, it took me three taps on the page to get past the The list of characters, characters, and they're separated into English and French. So there's just lists of lists of. People and names, mm-hmm. Wiltshire and Shropshire and Cheshire. And <laughs> no, those, those are all real shires, are, <laughs> which is
0: crazy enough. But, yeah. but they're
1: all just names of people that, that they, they don't have time to have any kind of um, yeah. Character depth or, or development, development or of yeah. any kind. No. Talbot is the one character who comes into the play with this. He was a, a revered character. Um, people knew who he was. He was a popular figure in in even the Elizabethan age. There was a writer at the time who uh, it may have been Thomas Nash, maybe yeah. or Kidd. I don't know. One of the the contemporaries of Shakespeare wrote in a, a pamphlet or a book that he after seeing this play that how cool would it have been i'm paraphrasing obviously (laughs) how cool would it have been for talbot to see himself portrayed like risen from the grave 200 years later it wasn't 200 years later but to come back and be this central imposing figure marching on the elizabethan stage so so he was, he was kind of a folk hero, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's allowed to have a little bit more depth, which makes it strange that he gets some of the weirdest um, character moments. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, Aiden, you mentioned when we were talking earlier today about the scene where Talbot and his son have a yep. bit of a discussion, and it's in rhyming couplets, and yep. it's very forced.
0: Very. And when
1: I was reading it, it reminded me of, like, you know, if you're a teacher listening to this podcast, you know what I'm talking about. If like, you
0: Or know, if you've ever been a teenager, or you yeah, know what yeah. we're talking about.
1: Right, I guess that's true. But <laughs> but you hand in an assignment or you write a poem and you think it's really great and it's kind of forced. And that's what this feels yeah. like. It does not feel Shakespearean, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, it's it's a little... It's not that Shakespeare can't do rhyming couplets because he does do them in other plays, and but they're done much more effectively and it's much less... um Trite? Yes, the topics being discussed are essentially uh, Talbot's son is like, well, I don't don't send me away from the battle right before I get to prove myself. Uh, I want to be a hero just like you, Pops, and Talbot <laughs> says, "Well, no, but you have to carry on the family name." And that's it, And they just go back and forth. It's very much like the capture of ruin uh, because they just go back and forth on this forever until Talbot basically says, "Okay yeah, you can stick around there's there's no uh, actual in-depth kind of, uh, rhetoric at play especially uh whereas shakespeare when he does these kinds of uh rhyming poetics it's to really cap off a strong point that someone else has made
1: well yeah usually it's it's like the last two lines of the the first interaction that romeo and juliet have where it's a sonnet and the rhyming couplet kind of caps off this height of emotion yeah in this case it's literally it really does feel like you're forcing the rhyme to fit the line yes and it's also notable we should mention that most of this play is written in iambic pentameter. Yep. it's written in verse. whether it rhymes or not is is not important, but there there's a sophistication to some of Shakespeare's later poetic verses where there it's blank verse more than it is rhyming verse. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just way more rhyming verse in this play per
0: line of this play absolutely yeah Yeah.
1: um but it's things like i I pulled up the the it's not the exact scene but it's a it's an example of Mm -hmm. this rhyme um so this is after talbot comes in after um i think this is after his son has died yes it is after his son has died where's my other life my own is gone oh where's young talbot where is valiant john triumphant death smeared with captivity young talbot's valor makes me smile at thee when he perceived me shrinking on my knee, his bloody sword he brandished over me. And like a hungry lion did commence rough deeds of rage and stern impatience. It's like, it's just very, very um, hallmarky kind of. <laughs> a
0: little bit. Right? And so yeah. to
1: give this great character who had, up until this point, had built up this stage presence and at least this legend... You know, this is not Henry V on the field of battle, yeah. you know, commanding uh, an army. This is this is a very different kind of war hero.
0: Yes. And it is it is interesting because uh, a lot of the characterization um, of Talbot comes from those talking about him, just mm-hmm. uh, on the English side, especially. The French side, you don't get it very much except for uh, the Countess of Armagnac. Is it Armagnac or Auvergne? Auvergne. Uh, who... Uh, you know makes basically insults him to his face before realizing that oh no he's actually scary right. um and so it's really kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy about what Talbot is mm-hmm. um because he is built up by so many of the characters um and i think this is getting to a point that we wanted to make about what the purpose of this play is mm-hmm. the play is english propaganda oh of course um through and through and that's something that becomes blatantly obvious obviously the time it was written you couldn't write something with you know a really good interesting french side to the story no. that would uh be heresy so um so in the terms of uh, talbot's character it's very much uh he is built up to be this kind of mythical figure. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the humanizing moments kind of feel shoehorned in a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, like honestly, the best the best moment of Talbot's character is when he meets the Countess of Ofer. Yeah. and he's talking about himself a little bit, yeah. and he has a chance to say, "Well, yes, I'm I'm not an imposing figure, but yet I'm really good at fighting wars because right. I'm smarter than everybody else." And that's when his soldiers rush in to you know recapture him from the Countess who thought she'd caught him in, right. a, in a trap, right? And I think that's really the the one really redeeming feature about Talbot is is that that uh, that moment when he gets to kind of explain himself a little bit more and doesn't let the play uh, hold him in check quite as much as it right. does with all the other characters. And,
1: that, and what what is interesting about that is that the actual John Talbot was, it, it's, it's, I think the general consensus with criticism of the play is that the references that are made in that scene are made because of the person who was originally playing this role. Yeah. And so that is an instance where I mean breaking the fourth wall is kind of a trite way of putting it, but but I think that's kind of what, yeah, what's happening here, right? Yeah. Like, yes, this character, this person on stage might be shorter than the man playing the Countess of Auvergne. So we're gonna we're gonna give him we're gonna throw him some lines that reference this a little bit. But that makes that is interesting. It is a f- kind of a funny way of of dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. I think that is probably his most in- interesting scene. Um, but I think he is he is at his most interesting before he's even stepped up on the yeah, stage it's at true. all. Like. Yeah. It's always like the monster in a horror film. Once yeah. you see it, it's it takes away the power. power. Yeah. So hearing about this John Talbot, this this master figure that that the English need to have back in order yeah. to keep France in check, um, hearing about him while like by characters talking about him while he's off stage is far more effective than actually seeing him in the flesh. And that happens quite a bit in the play. I feel like there's a lot of things that are described. Yeah off stage oh, that yeah. aren't that shown and for is... <laughs> well it, it is a problem but i think it's it's something that is a practical problem of just
0: how in do you stage case, a battle in some cases in other cases there's no excuse for it so we'll we'll get back to that anyways because there is one good thing i wanted to say about the part, yeah and it's kind of in contradiction to what you just said mm-hmm. um i found there was actually a, a fair bit of language that did still reek of the quality shakespeare mm-hmm. there were times when i was reading it yeah and i was just like you know what oh wow that was that was a good line yeah this was a good little pun that, that he snuck in there mm-hmm. or um this just reeks of his you know moving the bits around mm-hmm. as said on uh upstart crow that's his favorite bit is when he just moves the words around mm-hmm. and it works somehow yeah. so um and and the one scene that kind of stuck out to me was when uh Gloucester and Winchester, uh, one of the whom is Henry VI's uncle. I think Gloucester is his uncle and Winchester is also a distant relative. Anyways, they, they fight from the start of the play right up to the end. Um, and in Act 3, Scene 1, they have a, a nice little back and forth about who's at fault for everything. Um, and I think it's Gloucester says to Winchester... Thy pestiferous, and dissentious pranks, as every as very infants prattle of thy pride, thou art a most pernicious usurer, froward by nature, enemy to peace, lascivious, wanton, more than well beseems a man of thy pr- profession and degree.
1: I think I said that to you during our last argument, didn't I? Yeah, you,
0: you can shut your mouth. <laughs> uh, That's and good. I like that. It, it is good, right? Yeah. And and those kind of insults, like that, Shakespeare's yeah. very good at at you know crafting really. Really good burn
1: yeah. into
0: uh, someone's face. So, uh, and there's more in that scene. Uh, there's a bunch more pun- puns, I think, and some some kind of like underhanded stabs and stuff because yeah. uh, Winchester's a priest, and so he's saying like, "Well, you love the flesh and stuff right. like that." You know, there's yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah. those little ones. Yes. That um, yeah. It, it was it was interesting to read, and yeah. when we watched the play, it was also. Uh, one of the few moments I was like, oh, yeah, go. Like, yeah. That, you know, I was actually kind of invested in, in what the characters were talking about a little right. bit. Because otherwise it was a bit of a drag. I'm
1: glad you brought up that that there are moments where the language is very florid and, mm. um, and it works. quote unquote Shakespearean. And yeah. it works. Yeah. Because I think that's what there were. There were moments absolutely for me when I'm reading and, I'm you know, it's John Talbot and his son back and forth. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, OK, when can we get to the end of this? Um, but then... You know, a couple of pages later, there would be something that that just leapt off the page with how um, descriptive it was, or mm-hmm. how uh, a roundabout way of getting to the point in that very Shakespearean way that that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that points to either there one or one of two conclusions: that either this play was started when Shakespeare was very young. Um, maybe even a teenager or something, and that he revised it later on, or that there were multiple authors and that they were each given a section of the play or a scene of the play to write and that it was cobbled together, which, you know, in my research for this episode, uh, that wasn't very uncommon.
0: No, that was kind of the standard approach, yeah.
1: Like, I think that um, the way that we approach writing today, it's that there's a singular author who is responsible for crafting the whole of the story and I don't think that existed back there There was no ego about writing you didn't get your name put on the front page until the first folio it wasn't even that important but we need to be careful not to ascribe something more to that than than what it actually maybe meant like I think it was 2016 when the new Oxford Shakespeare edition actually credited Christopher Marlowe with as mm-hmm. a co-writer for the the three Henry VI plays, yes. um, which was kind of scandalous and. Sent people into an uproar at the time, but um, but it seems like when you actually read the play, and this was my first time reading the play, so when you when you're reading it, like before this, I thought, well, how can they tell this? How how do you know? But it's so clear that yeah. that these are this is either one writer at very different stages in in their career, or very different stages in the muses, you know, channeling the muse into their writing, or it's two totally different people. Yeah. Um. So that's. That's very clear. When those moments happen, that Aiden mentioned, um, when the the writing does get away and and is you know transports you to another place, those are really elevated moments. It mm-hmm. it they don't happen very often.
0: No, and they're not necessarily the elevated moments of the plot. No, they're not. Anything. In a That's, lot of cases, yeah. they're not. Yeah, uh, which makes it doubly kind of interesting that you notice them when they do come up. Yeah,
1: exactly. Because it's like a boring conversation between two people that you know, it really doesn't matter. It's the sixth of, you know, Gloucester and Winchester bickering, yeah, do, yeah, yeah. But you notice that the language is different, right? That's that's what's interesting to me. I will say one thing I didn't put in our notes that I wanted to bring up is that the the famous scene at the the temple, the the gardens where well, the white and the red roses are picked. Yeah,
0: let's because we didn't even mention that in the plot synopsis. No, we there, didn't. There is there's a whole other plot going on that's not set in France, not focused on the war itself, and it is basically the brewings of the Wars of the Roses. Right. It is the Civil War uh, being birthed, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk about it quite a bit because there's a lot of problems with that plot yeah. as well. Um, but yeah, sorry, you, you want well, to that. Well, that, that
1: so. scene is mythical. As I mentioned in our mm-hmm. Wars of the Roses episode, it, n- it likely never happened. It was just constructed much like the white and the red rose itself being kind of a construct of Henry VII, who united, yes. I'm using air quotes, <laughs> united the red and the white rose of Lancaster and York into the Tudor rose, um, which was just a, a big propaganda ploy in and of itself. It's branding. It's this is our brand, right? Yep. Um. So, So to have this shown in this play, um, referenced countless times in all kinds of literature about the Wars of the Roses to actually read it. It's not the most engaging. You don't even really know that that's what's happening until like yeah. far into the... In the and scene, then yeah. and then it becomes a motif that comes back. You know, yeah. the characters are wearing these roses. It's actually written in the stage directions that yeah. they come on with a white rose or with a red rose. And then they talk about how I'm going to turn your white rose red with yeah. blood and... Um, your face is as pale as your rose or whatever like yeah. like it's it becomes a recurring motif but this is the seed of of where all of that comes from and i would like to know i think i think one of my goals in this Sidebar here. One of the, my goals is to actually read the original source material that Shakespeare mm-hmm, based and others on, yeah. based this play on, because I'd like to know when that story actually took off. Like, it, it was it already something that was brewing in the legends at the was time that this was set down, or, something? Yeah, or was it completely invented by yeah. Shakespeare? I don't know, and I would like to find out. Just because it is such a, it feels like like it could have been true mm-hmm. you know like this is how these feuds get started well you picked a red rose i'm gonna pick a white rose and then that's how we're gonna you know yeah
0: but not at show all our because, loyalty <laughs> but not at all because they were claimants for the throne like that's well, what it no, came of down course,
1: to but but yeah. i'm just saying like it, it's the kind of thing that like this becomes part of our banner and that's your banner and now we're fighting each other and I, it's and yeah. it's the the dueling well, symbols of and those in the roses
0: and in the uh history book i read uh the the hollow crown it was it was they uh the author dan jones specifically said that both the red and white roses were had long for hundreds of years been symbols of these houses right so it was not a recent it was not picked no. up in a in a flower courtyard no of course in England yeah. somewhere so yeah. it's it, but you're right it is an interesting uh way that that because that scene is actually one again one of the worst scenes in the whole play. (laughs) Um, So it's really interesting that it it really kind of took hold as um, the origin story of the war of the roses. Yeah. As as we now understand them as being between these two great houses, um, because it's not an engaging scene. um, It's not really clear at all what's going on. And it, it does not portend to what the eventual, War of the Roses, Wars of the Roses were about, which was claiming the English crown.
1: But I still find it strangely compelling. Yeah. Just that, just that yeah. it's the that, just it's that it the, is the origin that it is. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And and that this is how feuds start. Yeah, like you could see this being the reason why two families would fight. Like this would be a no, an early I, I battle. No, I can't because
0: I have no idea what they're fighting about. That's one well, of- <laughs> that's the
1: thing. Like, how do any feuds start? We don't know why Capulet and Montague are fighting. We just accept that they're fighting. Yes, right? but then
0: they didn't show us. No, you're when right. When they started you're right. fighting without any reason.
1: You're right, because Sorry. Shakespeare was a little bit more Better. mature at that point yeah, or something. Yeah, five years later, yeah. But, but this feels very, um, I, I don't know, it just, it, it speaks of a kind of a truth about the pettiness of arguments and how they can blossom sure. and blow up into something much bigger that sure. you don't even realize how it starts
0: sure but i will say this felt like a shoehorn plot into a thing into a prequel it's felt yeah, like no for sure part two was a big hit they didn't call it part two they just called it henry the Sixth. yeah and they're like oh we need a prequel to cover the talbot guy everybody loved talbot right let's shoehorn this scene in there too
1: it's anakin talking about sand that's what it is yes is that what it is
0: no we're really confusing the star Wars. we are totally
1: let's stop
0: (laughs) there are more things in heaven and earth horatio than are dreamt of in our philosophy
1: so we got that out of our system the good stuff can we can we talk about the problems (laughs) we we bitched
0: a lot about the good stuff we did uh but yes i mean we
1: talked a little bit about the timeline wonkiness Mm -hmm. with henry the sixth actually being a an infant at the time and not a grown man or at least a teenager um the loss of france not happening immediately after henry v's death um i think that like we said is kind of a necessity of of the stage and it kind of bleeds into this this secondary criticism um that a lot of people have said about henry vi is that it doesn't adhere to the classical unities Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe this was an attempt to to kind of make that fit. Like we're going to condense this all so it happens in a much closer time period because then it adheres to the unity of time. The classical unities are the unity of action, place and time that were stated, you know, by the Greek um, playwrights um, that this is these are the three things that a play needed to be to be successful. It needed to it needed to have one time location, one place location and the action all had to occur at once too, yeah. which doesn't quite happen. Yeah, There's, for a
0: war. No, of <laughs> course really you can't do it in a war.
1: Yeah. So, so I don't, I don't think that criticism holds a lot of water. Yeah. But I do see that that maybe the playwright slash playwrights of this production were kind of, you know, shoehorning it, making it fit into a tighter time frame in order to, you know, make it more. Um, palatable and digestible to an audience right you can't have 30 years pass in a play no. you know there's some yeah, you know, guy, with guy walks out a day, 30 years later do 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 do.
0: <laughs> right yeah, like that didn't work. really happen no, so no. uh and yeah and so i mean that does pose problems for the play though obviously because you know basically as you mentioned uh basil exposition jumps out at the start of the play and it's like we lost everything in france yes. and then Three acts later, uh, he can go back to Paris, and or the king can go to Paris to get crowned right. king of France. Suddenly, right. uh, because Talbot's taken over everything again, yeah. uh, even though he just spent you know the previous two acts getting tossed in and out of Orleans two or three times in a row, right? right. So it's really, really confusing mm-hmm. to just uh, read and to watch you. Well, it literally no doesn't matter.
1: Like it, it's just yeah. oh, okay, these people are fighting. Oh, you know, some guy will come on and say. Rouen is ours. Yeah. And you're like, okay, he has a French name. I guess the French have yeah. Rouen. Alright. Oh, oh, some English guy. Oh, okay, well, they have it now. Yeah. The French have jumped over a wall. Oh, they have it now. Yeah. It's just it's it's not it's not consequential. No. And and maybe that's the point.
0: Yeah, we were talking about this, that perhaps the whole point of the uh constant back and forth is that the war is kind of futile and it tends to swing one way than the other. Um, it's very much a, a kind of wheel of fate kind of approach to warfare in this yeah. in this section, um, and it it also gives the impression if you're if you're handing it off to the fates that England eventually losing, which everyone knows they do, uh, isn't really England's fault. It's kind of the fates have decided that it's swinging back to to France's side for the next hundred and fifty years, yeah, up to Shakespeare's time, right? Right. So you know the, you could look at it that way as well. Um, but yeah, to, to read and watch the play, it's very difficult. Now there are quite a few, uh, stage directions in the text,
1: way more stage directions than I've ever seen in In any any Shakespearean Shakespearean play.
0: This might be the most. And a lot of them have to do with battles. So there probably were a lot of battles on stage. Probably because that's what people like to see. Maybe Shakespeare, especially we were talking, yeah. uh, if he was a 17, 20 year oldish guy, you know, he'd want to have big battles, especially sure. as an actor. would yeah. be like, yeah, I'll play Talbot. Yeah. Let's go fuck some Let's dudes stab up. stab yeah. some people.
1: Stabby, stab, stab. Yeah. Let's, you know, like, because yeah. that's, you know, it's it's we'll Avengers it. yeah. Endgame. That's what it Thank is. Thank you, Lindsay.
0: Right? Having just seen it's that It's Game film. of Thrones, the that. Battle
1: of Winterfell.
0: Hopefully not, because <laughs> disappointing. But either but yeah. way,
1: it's 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 very much just um it, it the none of the battle scenes, none of the the back and forth feels like it's very important mm-hmm. and and that's kind of none of this felt like it had any meaning. Yes. And it's maybe important to remember that this is the first part of 3. It's also the start of a much larger dynastic battle that's going to play out over the next 30 years so it's of course it's not going to be you know the most critical uh, it's it's a hundred years war it's not the wars of the roses it's part of we're seeing six or seven of a thousand minor battles that were yeah. played out over yeah. the Hundred Years' War. So, I mean, they really weren't consequential.
0: No, it's true, and and I mean, I guess in that sense of scope of history, it does make a certain amount of sense. Yeah. Uh, but again, as drama, it's it's terribly boring to watch, uh, right? And it's even harder to read.
1: Well, and I and I do have to wonder, you know the the. So only about 20% of of all of the writing that was ever done in the Elizabethan age has survived to the modern day. So yeah. I don't know and we don't know how many great battle scenes were ever depicted yeah. on the Elizabethan stage, yeah. how common these were. But you have to imagine that that these probably were more common than, you know the romeo and Juliet's or the all's well that ends well right like these kinds of things appeal to the guy you're trying to compete with bear baiters right so i mean you're gonna have some stabby stab stab going on on the stage right so um but the choice to depict battles like this and especially battles as recent as the, the hundred years war and as recent as the wars of the roses um is there a certain amount of editorializing that's going on, like like the fact that these don't feel consequential? Was that done on purpose, or was that done for practical reasons? Because you can't, as Henry V says, yeah. or as Henry in Henry V, as it said, you can't have the Battle of Agincourt play out on no. a small thrust stage yeah. in in a an oval theater. Um, so you're gonna have to just listen to us describe it and yeah. imagine it with your heads. Uh, or in your minds, not with your heads. With your brains
0: your minds. brains in your head, sure. Or is this
1: a decision on the part of the playwright? to say yeah. these are not important battles so yeah. we're not going to spend a lot of time depicting these battles we're just going to have a stage direction that says the French leap over the wall and then yeah. they've taken back the city yeah
0: yeah so it, and that's kind of interesting because it's kind of stuck in between those two trains of thought it's mm-hmm. kind of like well the battles are important but we're going to have tons of stage yeah. direction devoted to the battles right. and probably lots of time devoted to the battles when we yeah. the version we did watch the BBC production um, there was quite a bit of time right. devoted to uh, stage battles yeah. and gunshots and stuff like also sorts of fairly big effects and so on
1: which are choices that were made by the director and and i True. have never seen this True. performed no, on stage it's has. very <laughs> rare for this to be performed it is performed as part of the war of the roses yes if someone does the huge
0: wars yes. of the roses uh sequence then yes this is often part of it, if but you've it's watched also the
1: west wing president bartlett exactly. does go to new york to see the war
0: president. of the roses but it is usually truncated yes in, in a lot of those cases obviously you can't have 20 hours of play yeah. however long it would take to do six or eight plays um, so it's usually truncated with part two and three in fact uh, the Hollow Crown TV series that right. came out a couple of years ago uh, it combines part one two and three into two hour long episodes mm-hmm. or maybe they're hour and a half an hour 45 minutes but anyways there's two parts to right. the Henry VI period within yeah. this history yeah. uh, tetralogy so um, even in the modern adaptations they're cutting it down because yeah. it is a not that engaging, and B a lot of fighting and stage direction, which maybe you could do justice to now. You could have a Battle of Agincourt filmed. Uh, you were well, mentioning he did, yeah, Henry V Branagh as Henry V did. Yeah.
1: Jude Law as Henry V on stage, though so that was yeah. a little different. That
0: was a little different. It was but, good. but
1: when you're filming it, it you can nowadays you can do a lot more. Yeah. Um, the but only the BBC would put on in their complete works of William Shakespeare series that they did back in the '70s and '80s. Um, they are probably the only people that have ever committed this to film in such a, a thorough manner. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I guess props to them for that. But, Absolutely. But it, it does We've make for...
0: allowed us to watch the play because this is the only way we were going to be able to see o- it. So.
1: <laughs> and the only way we could watch it was streaming it through our library yeah. <laughs> it's really not available anywhere.
0: It's very true.
1: But... Which is surprising because there are—I mean—sidebar again. Brenda <laughs> Blethyn plays Joan of Arc, and yes, um, she does. Bernard Hill plays um,
0: uh, Duke of York. Yeah, Richard the Duke of York. York. So that's so any Lord of the Rings or Pride and Prejudice fans—that's yeah. where we recognize them. We're, that's King Théoden. <gasps> that's Mrs. Mrs. Bennet. Mrs. Bennet. Yeah. So
1: I mean, so that that was kind of cool to see, but I mean, you know, it's. It, 1980s BBC production so yeah. it's, it does every line it does every scene it's yes. and it, it is
0: good at, it's good to watch it's I good think, to watch if you, if
1: you have the chance to watch it and you're, you're interested in it go for yeah, it if but, somehow
0: we've sold you on this play in this yeah. podcast I'm you
1: will see two uh, war generals meeting each other on hobby horses
0: oh, yes, which made
1: the whole thing worth worthwhile, it yeah. when they're like <laughs> I, they're I'm, swaying, going, I'm going oh, to man. describe it to you <laughs> When they ride out in in front of their armies and uh and yeah they they like rock back and forth but it's just them walking there with their yeah. it's ridiculous
0: it is, it is so ridiculous we, we it's could like not believe high that school, school play yeah,
1: production yeah. level but
0: even in high school play you would laugh at it and they would be doing it for yes, jokes and maybe there this would was... be a guy
1: behind them with a pair of coconuts <laughs> I mean, right. running it's behind Monty them python-ing on stage and, yeah. just pythoning the hell out yeah. of it. Which makes me wonder why this was not this has not Don't. been done no <laughs> done as a comedy is what I was going to yeah, say okay. but
0: yeah I could see that too
1: um, we're getting a little farther away from from the problems of the play I think or uh, are we no
0: I think they're all really connected I, I will jump ship a little bit from uh, the production quality of any one performance to another kind of structural issue with the play which is that. There's no real protagonist until about Act 4. You don't really realize that Talbot is the main character right. um, because there are so many other characters, yeah. because there's so many other dramas going on around rivalries uh, within between Gloucester and Winchester. It's a very unfocused play. It is a very unfocused play. Uh, yeah, so you don't really get it until Talbot is kind of under siege and he's mm-hmm. about to die um, and his son shows up. Yeah. And they, they have that back and forth and it's all poetic and then his son dies and then uh Talbot dies and 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 that's kind it's kind of after his son died I'm like oh Talbot's the main character and it was act four and it was it was much too late um and again it it kind of it was retroactive that I came back to his character and said oh yeah he he did have some interesting bits in there because the other again kind of interestingly developed character is Joan of Arc Mm -hmm. um who goes through some major swings um, let's just put it that way. Um, but yeah, so Talbot's, Talbot's character and the lack of clarity about his narrative being the major thrust of, uh, the play is very evident right up until he dies. Um, the other ones that are jumping around, York and, uh, who's Somerset, mm-hmm. uh, are the two dueling ones in the, the start of the Wars of the Roses. Um, they are eventually sent to, uh, relieve Talbot. And right. it's it's only at the very end there that their stories kind of intersect and connect, yeah. and the fact that they don't help each other leads to Talbot's death because they can't get their shit figured out in time to save him from the French. Right. So it's it's a very kind of haphazard bringing all to, these plots together uh, near the end. Right. It feels very rushed. It feels very unstructured. Yeah. And all of all, all of, of Act Four
1: and Five really feel kind of like different yes and that's where five we especially see, yeah, yeah but that's where we see the, the major changes in joan of arc which i think we should put a pin in briefly just because yeah we'll come
0: back to that
1: what happens with her is is much more interesting than anything else really yeah. that happens in the play
0: it's true
1: um but yeah you're right there's there's uh a, a lack of focus that that really only in hindsight you realize what this the main thrust of the story actually is which is i guess a failing on the part of the, the storyteller. But also, I mean, when you're trying to do justice to a, an actual event, you're yeah. trying to put as much of the truth in "quote unquote" truth as possible. Um, but are you
0: because well, this I is mean, propaganda? It He's is. He's already playing with so many things. Why not? It is. Play with it. To but have- you're
1: not. You're not going to say that. You know, um, like. <laughs> You can't combine six different earls or dukes into one character because then you'd piss off people who sure. are sitting in the court sure. ha- at this day, sure. and these and ha- are their grandparents. Sure,
0: and have their characters still be there? Don't talk to them. Don't have them in speaking sure roles. Don't give them anything to do or anything to talk. It
1: about. is, but so yeah, that's what I mean. Where I say it's it's a fault on the on the, the part of the playwright with trying to do too much in yeah. within the strictures of um trying to a, a still match play. yeah
0: and trying to match close at least some form of the history that, yeah. that, that, that your audience would have understood and expected yeah.
1: like i i can forgive the playing with the age of henry the sixth because it makes it more compelling to have not a baby yeah. <laughs> as a, yeah. as the the title character of a play yeah um <laughs> <laughs> when you see what the opposite spe- end of the spectrum is, which is to have every named character from every major duchy yeah. or whatever um, standing there and giving long monologues that, you know, match up more or less with what Raphael Hollins had wrote yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Like I think that that on balance between those two, I would rather have... Uh, messing around with the ages. Yeah, definitely. You know, like like fit it into, recognize what what the story is, whittle it down to what the actual thrust of the story is. Which Mm -hmm. I I think you're right. It's this great Talbot being you know shot down in a volley of uh, an an air assault or whatever it was. Yeah, Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And that's that's the main point of the story, and have the emotional heft of him talking to his son. You know, carry more weight than it does. Yeah,
0: and maybe introduce his son you more know, than yeah two the scenes, scenes before, before he dies. dies. Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, so yeah, I mean, though I, here we are sitting in judgment <laughs> on Shakespeare, but or Shakespeare and Company. But yeah. I mean, it it does seem like these are pretty basic mistakes to make. So which which makes me wonder if this wasn't written by a young. Shakespeare, yeah, Um, just because it does seem like kind of a a rookie mistake.
0: Yeah, it's a little, it's a little juvenile. It's, it's kind of what you do when you're, you, you're not sure how closely to follow a source text, uh, which Shakespeare is basically the master of nowadays. We consider him the The expert at taking something small, like Mac, like a rather small historical figure, like Macbeth, yeah, and turning him into this amazing figure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. And here he just perhaps hasn't hasn't figured that out quite yet. Yeah. Uh, and it so it does feel a little young, a little rushed. Um. And it's not just in that character though. Um. And that thrust. It's mm. in. Uh, there are other characters that also have issues. Yeah. Um. I think. Actually, one of the better ones, especially, and I think this was down to the production, but uh, uh, in the BBC production, Henry the Sixth character was very well done for uh, expressing how bad of a king he was. Right. He's uh, very effeminate. Yeah. He's very frail and soft-spoken, and he just wants to do. Wait, are you saying that women can't rule England? Well, this is kind of what I was getting (laughs) at. is Why? Because they really did make him quite effeminate, uh, explicitly so, and. I think we can talk about this a little bit later, but uh, women are kind of like the bad characters in the yeah. play. Um, there's no good woman really right. at the end of it, uh, and Henry the Sixth is basically described and portrayed as a woman. Um, and in the the BBC version, it's it's very explicitly so. Um, but at the same time, that does get across that he was a very weak king. And there's only one kind of real dilemma that he faces. It's who to marry. Right. There's, there's kind of two options. One is uh, the Earl of someone's daughter. Yep. Um, and then Margaret. The, Margaret of Anjou, who he winds up actually marrying. Right. Uh, after a very brief kind of like monologue from the Earl of War- Somerset. I don't even remember. The one who's going to sleep with her in part two.
1: Yes. Basically. Yes. Which was heavily foreshadowed. <laughs> yes. Throughout their scene. Because yeah. he goes to, to meet her. Well, and he captures her. He captures her, capture her the almost yeah. rapes her, and then decides, no, I, you're too beautiful for this. So I'm going to give gonna you to, to my king. king
0: so then but we're sleep- going
1: to flirt a lot. <laughs> And but he's the
0: only one flirting. She's just kind of yeah. like, uh, what's going on, buddy? Yeah,
1: it's very, it's very strange. But um, she becomes a very big figure. Margaret of Anjou is Later a very on, yes. powerful woman yeah. figure in the Shakespearean canon. So it's it's interesting to see her origin story. I guess if you want to use the Marvel yeah. um, <laughs> analogy sure, yeah. here. But um, but yeah, for Henry VI, it's it's effeminate. But I think that's the way that productions would go. Um, when, when trying to show youth without showing youth, without having Henry VI played by a 16 year old, you would get an effeminate looking older man to play that role, which is what this BBC production did. It would be interesting to see how other productions have done it. Because
0: I, he makes so many references to being young and then you see him and he's like, oh, he's he's 45. He's definitely in his 40s. yeah.
1: But it's, it's... You're right. Like there is something very ineffectual about him, and it is yeah. because he's kind of thin and wiry, yeah. and he has very delicate features.
0: Yeah, in that way, he's perfectly very cast, soft-spoken. Right?
1: Yeah, and, and knowing what we know about Henry the Sixth, I mean, he doesn't look anything like the depictions of Henry the Sixth from paintings and court portraits, no. whatever that were done. Um, but but there is something of that uh, persona that yes, is that
0: comes across. Yeah. yeah,
1: and so and so to have um. You know Henry the Sixth being the the Lancastrian king that loses the throne to the Yorkist Edward the Fourth, but then um, ends up like the Tudor comes in, like yeah, how, and yeah. I, I you know I'm trying to picture the the, <laughs> the, family, the, tree. the family tree again. Like Henry the Seventh is distantly related to Henry the Sixth, yeah, but this is still a relation of the queen who was sitting on the throne at the time that this play was written and performed. Yeah. So there is still, there. I, I would imagine there needs to be some decorum yes, and delicateness exactly. in dealing with this character. Exactly. Like you don't want to portray him as completely ineffectual. Yeah. The way that they do with the Yorkists, that it seems like the Richard III gets to be shuffled to the side as this villain, this yeah. outright villain. Yeah. But that's because Elizabeth's direct descendant usurped him and yeah. that needed to happen. Yeah. Henry the was usurped by uh, someone who wasn't a good person that you're trying to build up. So yeah, you don't have to build them back. You, up. That's yeah, you yeah. don't have so so, but you still have to pay some deference to that character, yeah. which is why it's interesting. It, it' also interesting that he's portrayed so effeminately, but but I don't know. Like you know, given that that there was a woman on the throne at the time, you would yeah. imagine that that you know making women out to be evil yeah but all rulers. the evil all the evil women in this play are french so well
0: yeah it's true but there are no female women no there aren't english women there are uh, no I, female women there are no female women <laughs> let me tell you
1: there are no english females there's no that english are women at all, at all
0: yeah so all the women are french and the french are really the bad guys. yeah exactly so it follows naturally that the the french are the the baddies and therefore the women are mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. inherently bad um and one of those is uh is Margaret of Anjou um and her character is I mean again we she's introduced in act five Mm -hmm. it's like scene three there's only a couple scenes left and she's basically wooed over like a hot cup of cocoa and nothing (laughs) else like it takes nothing and she's like yeah okay I'll be queen sure
1: yeah Uh, just ask my dad just make sure yeah just make
0: sure it's okay with my dad yeah uh and it's very very uh similar to um Two Gentlemen of Verona and Timir the Shrew, actually, yeah. in the way that women are kind of silenced. And uh especially at the end of Two Gentlemen of Verona really right. came to mind because it was like they don't get a say really in what happens to them at the yeah. end. Uh her saying, Yes, I agree to this is way more than the the two ladies of Verona right. uh, got. But um it is kind of a pattern of these early Shakespeare plays yeah. that the women are not getting their their fair shake. Yeah. Um, except for Joan of Arc, Joan of Arc,
1: Joan of Arc is one of these characters. Now I, I knew that she was in the play and I knew that she was somebody important. We didn't talk about her in our women of Shakespeare episode,
0: not much, I but didn't I her think
1: bit. because we kind of avoided a lot of the historical figures, mm-hmm. um, just because we're probably going to do separate episodes on them later on as we yeah, go through. Yeah, probably. But Joan is so fascinating because, and, and I'm going solely off of Brenda Bledon's performance in the BBC production yeah. because she really does a great job of, like, there's a lot of looking at the camera and and yeah. some wall-breaking.
0: Yeah, I forgot to mention that. During the Margaret uh, wooing scene, too, there's there's literally, like, who are you talking to? Yeah. Just all these asides. Yes. That one hurt yeah, so bad because that bit. is not Shakespeare's style. No. He does the asides, even when there are multiple ones.
1: Yes, the aside the is aside a private is, moment yes. that nobody else hears, yeah. but... Um, but for Joan it's she's built up from the beginning she's introduced as this this powerful person who has this um, this drive this thrust this, mm-hmm. and, and the force of history and narrative behind her as she meets the Dauphin the Dauphin falls in love with her instantly after yeah. a, a very brief battle yeah a little, um, little sparring
0: match yeah. As it were. yeah
1: and uh, wants to marry her and she says no not until later and she's very self-assured and self-possessed and then she's She's a warrior and she fights in all of these battles, Mm -hmm. which is a singular accomplishment for a woman in in Shakespeare who is not. I mean, I guess she is dressing like a woman or dressing like a a man, man, but But she's she's, not pretending to be a man, which is very different from the way that Viola does in uh, Twelfth Night or um, any of the 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 characters do anything
0: (laughs) like Viola.
1: Wait, isn't Viola
0: Olivia? Is it Viola who she becomes? I don't remember. We haven't we haven't read it's that one. So it's been a while so long since we read twelfth night.
1: That. But any of the characters any of the women who become men In
0: order to act to, like uh, men. Yes. They
1: they have male names and mm-hmm. they dress like men and they talk like men and they are perceived by others as men. Joan is not. Joan no. is from the beginning a, the maid. a maid of Orleans and yeah. she is um she's never at least by the French, she's never denigrated for being a woman. At the very beginning, they're skeptical. Yeah, yeah. But when they see how powerful she is, they want to build statues for her. And no longer will, will the patron saint of France be Saint Denis. It will be Jean, Jean d'Arc. Yeah. Like, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. And and this is, um, like, La Pousselle becomes this, like, she is unlike any other female Shakespeare player. Uh, character up until act five which is when she's captured by the english and put on trial and sent to the stake which Mm -hmm. is a historical fact it's what happened to joan of arc but the way that her character changes was such an about face and so jarring that i think people have to think about there there has to be another reason for that to happen this was another writer or this was um you know somebody yeah. less sympathetic to joan because the first four acts joan is is a very um a very self-assured and fully developed and rounded character with doubts and fears and strengths and weaknesses and then in the end she becomes exactly what the English have been calling her all along. A yep. harlot, a witch. She's actually casting spells. She's, you know, a slut who's been sleeping around. Yeah. She's pregnant. The, the that's what she appeals yeah, yeah. to the king to, or to the, the the warriors to not kill her because she's pregnant. Like it's it's so unlike her. Yeah. From the first well, four acts.
0: Yes, there's definitely a character shift there. But I have to say, uh, just getting back to your, your point about her being a woman who nonetheless does well yeah. um, and how that's very un- unlike the rest of Shakespeare's heroines, mm-hmm. uh, I have to say it's possibly because she's French. So it's yes. it's it's not... A po- it wouldn't have had the positive connotation that you or I could take from it now, saying like, oh yes, this is a strong female character who exhibits or shows that women can accomplish things when given the same chance as a man. Mm-hmm. It's very much... Well, this is a the only the French would be so depraved and so desperate yes. to call upon a woman to lead their armies. So uh, and obviously she's burned as a witch because that's what she is. Like she's crazy.
1: It, God talks to her. Exactly. She's well, nuts.
0: Yeah. Exactly. And th- I think that was kind of um, that's supposed to kind of overshadow everything in the first four acts. I feel like I don't think, but I don't think the play does it very well. And I think we'll, we'll come back to well, the and, and, distinctions. And that's, there, and that's but, why
1: I think um, it's. There's a complexity to her. You can read it that way, and you can read it as being, you know, this is French depravity. But, but there is a complexity there that speaks to the maturity of the writer, and it and it reminds me of Shylock, for example, in Merchant of Venice, who is hmm. a villain but has, you know, a, a depth of emotion and yeah. um, a relatability and that's purposeful. It's written into his character. He gets a speech that that yeah. defies, defies us to, or, yep. or you know, like it. He is a singular villain, mm-hmm. um, Macbeth, Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth is one of my favorite characters of all of Shakespeare because she is complex and round and mm-hmm. she has feelings and emotions that I relate to. Even though I have never murdered anybody, I still feel like I understand her. Joan, I feel the same way towards. And mm-hmm. and I think that that's, um, that's something that I can see shakespeare's fingerprints all over act five joan i don't see any of shakespearean i see that as and and we'll get to that i think that's what we're going to be bickering about yeah i have a feeling by the end of this episode yeah but i feel like the act five joan is a very different kind of female character a very different kind of french character and a very different kind of villain um that that has bears no relation to the joan that we saw in the previous four acts yeah and i I just find that really interesting and it really does bolster the argument for me that this was somebody else who who maybe wrote her or that this was the the act five joan was the product of a younger shakespeare or somebody who was less um able to to deal with the nuance of I've, character
0: yes although i i didn't notice it quite as much as you did i i noticed it after uh there was a there were a few textual notes in the folders edition that really kind of highlighted, like, we get a totally different Joan in Act 5. I'm like, yeah, she is different. But her you mean you didn't
1: even see it in the, no, when we were in the BBC production? A
0: little bit. A little bit. And But here's the thing, is that in Act 5, she is captured. She, right. she has no longer uh, access. She no longer has access to... An army. Yeah, to any of the things that were making her uh, masculine, mm-hmm. she has been reduced again to a maid, a, a woman, a, a shepherd's daughter, yeah. um, and in that position, she does not know how to react. So, mm-hmm. in my mind, uh, it was it was it was understandable. I, I agree. It's it's a noticeable difference, and even just some of the language she uses is a little off compared to uh, the the kind of verve she had earlier on. Um, but the Act Five. She's in a totally different situation than she ever was before, um, begging for her life. She knows she's about to burn alive. Mm -hmm. You know, you would say and do anything you could to try try and cure that. So, yes, she turns into a whore by, you know, claiming to be pregnant. But if you thought you had a chance of that working, you would do it. I mean, she's not... The the bigger problem yeah. with Act Five is that she doesn't seem that smart, whereas before she was, you know, she didn't have a, a very good plan of how to get out of this mm-hmm. in Act Five, whereas before that point she was she was the master general who yeah. had, you know taken over every English town that Talbot had you know or every French town that Talbot had previously taken. So, I think those distinctions between on her character are interesting, but um, I didn't I wasn't quite as blown away uh, mm-hmm. by the differences as as you were.
1: I don't know. It just it just felt like these were, it was a misstep at some point, and I I'm still on the fence about which Joan is the real Joan. with the real Joan of Arc, please stand, stand up. up. <laughs> um, well, I don't think you're going to get but, her from
0: an English. But here's author, right? here's the
1: thing, yeah, and that's that. Thank you. That was a perfect segue, Aiden, because <laughs> um, I think that Joan serves a very interesting function in literature because. Um, if you look at the, the depictions of Joan of Arc throughout fictional literary history, Shakespeare is the first English author um, listed as, as a someone who wrote about, about yeah. Joan of Arc. Prior to that, it was um, continental European writers. After that, and, and as you go through the list, if you read through the the various people who have written about Joan of Arc... It seems like they they put her in situations that reflect their own uh, societal um, changes that are going on. So, Mm -hmm. for example, during the French Revolution, you have English writers who are using Joan of Arc in order to explore the French Revolution. Or you have Bertolt Brecht uh, writing her as a labor leader, you know, in the 1930s. Um, You have Mark Twain, who writes like a fictional autobiography that's dictated by Joan to her page, which is just such a twain thing to do. Yeah. It's, it's less about Joan as a character and more about what Joan represents to the author or to the author society. Yeah. And she fills a role. And I, I only read through and, Really paid attention to the English authors because I thought that was more interesting. I think the French authors revere her more because she was killed by the English. The English view yeah. her as a witch and and whatever. So well, she, she's not so a is human. viewed
0: as an other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. She's
1: not. She's not. She's not viewed as as a human or as a character. She's viewed as a, a an archetype or a, not even that a stereotype or or something. Yeah,
0: I figure. She's not a. Yeah, she's not a human person. Whereas
1: the the French, I think, um, she is she's important she has a centrality to the myth well, like she's
0: the saint patron saint of france now right like well
1: yeah right yeah. i mean no it's still saint denis but well, anyway yeah. <laughs> uh saint joan like Jeanne d'arc she is she is a, a legendary figure so it's um it's interesting to see how people respond to her and i feel like shakespeare what shakespeare is doing here or what the authors behind henry vi part one are doing is crafting her to fit the purposes she is an effective general because they need to have a foil or a counterweight to Talbot so that's what act the four first four acts are is her being a, a sophisticated general that explains Talbot's inability to hold on to France in the play itself and in the end she plays as a, a role as the vanquished witch witch yeah and and it's just it's villainizing her, which is what they need to do in order to justify killing the voice of or the person who is hearing the voice of God. Mm-hmm. Right? So I don't I don't know. I just I feel like that's more interesting to me than anything else because Joan is is here the first time being written for English audiences by an English author. And we're seeing the start of this trend of fitting her joan into, yeah. into what what they need her to be yeah. in order to represent what they need to say yeah um so it's a convenience she's a convenient character to to write about which is not fair to her as a as a historical figure as she was yeah. and a remarkable historical figure i think we're gonna have to do an episode about joan of arc there's no question Lindsay. yes
0: what did i say before this episode What did you say before? That we're going to do an episode on Joan of Arc and you're like, no, that's stupid. Why would we do an episode on her? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because she's interesting.
1: No, I was the one who suggested it. Okay. I think we need to have this microphone running at all times.
0: I think it was actually running. I think we're (laughs) going to check and you're going to be proven wrong. Right. Okay. If I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickerings. So uh, this week's discussion. Battle of the Bix. Is that what we're calling it? Because we never really decided on a title. No, here, we didn't. Wednesday. But that's
1: what it's going to be. I it's just the, made the decision. Executive decision made right here. Okay. I, okay. Until I miss, we change our mind. Yeah. Of course.
0: Or, well, you change your mind more. So, uh, so this wow. week's battle of the Bix <laughs> is is about those those two main characters, uh, Joan of Arc and Talbot, and we want to we're going to figure out right here right now,
1: definitively, who's,
0: definitively who's the more interesting character. Yeah. Um. And I my money's all on Talbot. Uh, and I'll Figures. tell you why, Lindsay. Yeah, well we Typical. had to, we, we had to gender it. Uh, it only made <laughs> sense. Uh so I think the the biggest thing he's got going for him is that uh he is a protagonist, right, first of all. Uh and that he is that position gives him it gave Shakespeare and or the other writers uh room to uh explore a fuller range of uh his experiences he has uh a positive interaction with his one family member right. joan gets her come up with her father who she you know denies and he's not my father. Father. what yeah, are you talking, what about? I'm talking about um so you, you don't get that that kind of human interaction that that you have between as bad as that scene is between talbot and his son you do get a sense that um talbot is uh searching for a way to care about the things that he loves and Mm. he's open about loving them Mm -hmm. uh he is fighting for england and king and country uh but he has these other things that drive him as well Mm -hmm. and he's open with them and he's he's uh explicitly saying as much Uh, i think that that scene uh while not interesting to read or uh see is is a a peek into a character that, that that gets more uh Gets more depth afforded to him mm-hmm. than, uh, say, Joan of Arc, um, and that that combines with those other me- passages that I mentioned, like when he meets the Countess of Auvergne, uh, or Av- yeah. and I, Overn. I, It's
1: Auvergne, it's
0: Auvergne. Okay, uh, when she's trying to kill him, and and he is he's self deprecating a little bit. Yeah, and whether or not it's the actor, I think that's silly. I don't, I'd never like that argument. But anyways, even if it was that case, the that's the how the character is immortalized on, in the text, and I feel like it is an indication that. Um, above everything else you know he he cries when his uh associate is shot with a, a cannon or a sniper fire i think it's supposed to be um and he he cries over this this dead man that he knew and loved um and then he's also makes fun of himself a little bit because he is small of stature but big of heart you know he he can be um multiple things in one character um and while you don't know you're supposed to feel for him throughout the play because it is so poorly structured. Um, you can't help but feel a little bad for him that he is. I mean, it, it's all kind of like there's a bit of negative plot armor, I would almost say. Like he's <laughs> he's definitely going to die. Right. Um, so all these other plots that lead to him dying feel like a little arbitrary right. um, because they don't uh, build up themselves very consistently or clearly. It's a bit of a problem for when he dies because you're like, oh, well... Of course, he's going to die because the Wars of the Roses is starting in the background, and that's really where the focus should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still affords you a little bit of a chance to feel bad for this character who you've come to see, you've come to watch him fight valiantly many times, many, many, many times, and cry <laughs> out, Talbot! <laughs> and then draw his sword and fight the French. Ah, Talbot! Talbot! Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think he's he is a, actually, for a play that's not great... And a bunch of characters who are not interesting or well-written, he is the one that stands out for me.
1: I just wanna say I love listening to you and watching you talk about things that, that you have to say.
0: You're buttering me up to admit you're wrong. You're
1: very wrong. Oh, okay. You're very wrong. Okay. But I do enjoy that, that that you have such a depth of feeling. As wrong as you are about it, it is it is. Well please
0: refreshing. do share why I'm wrong. Lizzie. Well,
1: I just all the things that I previously said about about Joan of Arc makes me um, really it solidifies my opinion that she is the the most interesting character in this play and and she's really the first interesting female character i think kate in taming of the shrew Mm -hmm. is interesting enough but joan is like mold breaking like she is such a different character and, and until you get um maybe beatrice in Alls Well That Ends Well mm-hmm. or Portia. Uh, Portia or Lady Macbeth, um, Titania, you yeah. don't really get another character like Joan. And I think that's um, as a symbol of or a signifier of where Shakespeare is going to be going with his treatment of women. Mm-hmm. And to have that done with a historical figure who is fictionalized to such a degree in this play um it's it's a bold choice it's an interesting choice i think you could have gotten away with depicting joan um as act five joan throughout and have her be like play into that that uh vicious lie that she was a witch and that she was uh heretical and that this was um all some nastiness on the part of the french and and you know, have her cooking. You know, witches brew in a scene or whatever. Like, like play into it. Really lean into it. Yeah, you could have done that. Shakespeare could have done that. The the choice for the first four acts to not do that, to have her appear on stage as smart. She's not fooled by the Dauphin's ruse at the beginning when yeah. they first meet. He hides behind his. Um, has one of his attendants pretend to be him, just to test her. And she sees right through it. Um, so she's smart, and she's she's a, a brilliant battle strategist. Mm-hmm. And she's she wins the respect of the entire French army, which doesn't mean much to the English. The French don't have... They don't respect the French at all. So, I mean what does it matter that they respect her? But the fact is that there are men on stage who are revering a woman. Mm -hmm. There are men on stage who are following, who are fearing a woman. They're following a woman into battle. And this was true. This actually happened. And I think depicting that in such a sympathetic light for the first four acts, at least, um, really paints Joan in a very interesting light. She's not, she's, she's, she's not a cold, heartless killer, she's not uh, a soft feminizing force either. Yeah. She's complicated and I think that is unlike anything you see for you know, another decade almost on on well not quite that long, but but several years until Shakespeare writes some of his future great female characters. I think that's really a unique Thing to see, and so that makes her in my mind that makes her really interesting. And I'm I'm always going to look at the female characters as a barometer of where um, in when we talk about Shakespeare, where the social mores are. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I think to to take a a French, b female, c victim of English. anger propaganda or whatever to to take a character like that and to paint her in such a sympathetic light is as pierce hawthorne would say on the television show show community streets ahead it's streets (laughs) ahead streets ahead ahead of where of where the other female characters are you don't see this in in two gentlemen of verona you don't see it in taming of the shrew um, unless you apply a, a, a very liberal um yeah, slant on yeah. on the play so
0: well yeah it'll be interesting to see how yeah. margaret of Anjou comes yes. out in part two and yeah. stuff because we haven't read that one either no. uh yeah it'll be interesting to see i mean I, I i agree those are interesting points of why she's interesting within the canon yeah but i don't think on the page or on the screen she's that although no i i will give you uh in performance she was on the bbc version she yeah. was much better than uh the Talbot was the man the character actor playing Talbot. I can't talk right now. Uh, he was he was good as well, but she was really Brenda Blethyn.
1: Yeah, just yeah. all props she to was, Brenda Blethyn. Yeah, she was brilliant. Great. Um that kind of wraps up our conversation. Yeah. We uh, we didn't talk at all about Christopher Marlowe and his role in perhaps yeah, what, writing, some writing this. this, but I yeah. think maybe that's going to be a separate episode in and of itself. I think itself. We're,
0: we're definitely going to be talking about Marlowe uh, going forward. Uh, we're probably going to – yeah, we'll probably do an episode devoted to Marlowe. I think we're going to
1: have to do it soon, though, because yeah. – Marlowe's 1593 death at Deptford is, is, is coming yeah. up yeah. so i mean he unless unless you subscribe to the anti-stratfordian view that kit Marlowe faked his own death in order to continue writing as shakespeare um his time on the stage is coming near an end yeah so we are uh but, but i i do agree we'll, we'll have to we'll have to talk about him because uh he's a He's just a colorful character to begin with. Yes, that too. Why have we not seen a film made about the life of Christopher Marlowe? Yeah. Noted spy, atheist, died in a bar fight. Like, this guy yeah. was a baller. He lived, yeah. He, he lived. lived. He was 29 when he died. Man. Yeah, his best life. Man, we should do that as our podcast
0: like get stabbed in a bar fight
1: no <laughs> talk about christopher marlowe oh, yeah well just completely what we're going to do no, it. like no. just the whole podcast let's just have uh, episode after episode about christopher marlowe tamberlane and the jew of malta and let's just do it screw the bix pod, <laughs> the, the, kit pod. the kit pod no i don't know this Maybe. is lame
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh but this has been our discussion of henry six part one uh thank you for joining us um and we will be back uh in two weeks with another episode we haven't decided what our next special episode is it might be uh Christopher Marlowe it might be might be be Joan uh, of Arc maybe maybe maybe? both maybe we'll do both no we're not gonna do both both that's a terrible idea
1: let's do both
0: (laughs) elaborate heist elaborate heist
1: You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix.
0: If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at BixPod,
1: on Facebook at facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at thebixpod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.